0: With me, please, Genesis chapter nineteen. We're making our way through here in the second part of Genesis, as we we will be until right around Christmas time. And uh, up to this point, we've we've heard an awful lot about Abraham, and and we're not going to hear much about Abraham in this in this section. We're going to focus primarily on Lot and what's going on uh, with him. Lot being Abraham's nephew, and he gets himself into a little bit of trouble here, and we're going to see what that. Uh, has to do with us. We're in Genesis chapter 19. You know, in, in the evangelical world, we have this, this strange phenomenon of celebrity pastors and preachers. Uh, that is, there are a number of, uh, of people who would not necessarily be recognized in the, the popular culture, but when it comes to the subculture of Christianity, they are what we would call uh, Christian famous uh, they might have large churches, they might have uh, popular podcasts, they might have uh, television shows, they, they may uh, have books or CDs, or maybe even some of you have cassette tapes uh, from uh, some of these people. But um, of all the modern prophets and preachers out there, there is none that I can think about that understands the human condition more than the Reverend Kenny Rogers, and uh, through allegorizing, of course, his hit song, The Gambler, just, just about sums up our, our understanding and our, our, uh, our uh, relationship with sin. Remember, he sings that, that you got to know when to hold him, you got to know when to fold him, you got to know when to walk away, and know when to run. Uh, In other words, uh, Kenny Rogers understands that instead of making a a clean break with with sin, we tend to make quick decisions on which ones to hold on to because they benefit us and which ones we need to fold and throw on the table because we know that it's more of a liability than it is anything else. However, we are not afforded as Christians to pick and choose which sins we can use, and which sins we get to uh, discard. You know, Martin Luther, in the first of his 95 theses, he wrote, When our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant uh, the whole of the Christian life should be one of repentance, and so repentance, uh, in that meaning, that it's not a one-time action or a decision. Rather, repentance is a lifestyle that ought to uh, define uh, the, the, the Christian. And we, Jesus tells us that we need to throw them all on the table every single day. See, we, uh, we got to know when not to hold them because we have to make sure that we're folding them. We need to know that it's time to get rid of them and turn. Holding on to an allegiance to sin, it's nothing new. It's not like this is a surprise to us. It's plagued humanity since the Garden of Eden. It, uh, it appears in our text today, and I think we're going to find out that it actually shows up in our own Hearts as well, and the history of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, puts on display our lives. But not only does it put our lives on display, but it also shines brightly a better and more um, a better and more sure kingdom, and that is the kingdom of Christ, who has invaded our own personal Sodom's and Gomorrah's, and we can have redemption through that. And so, there are four things that, uh, that we need to take a look at today in sort of this long passage, but I think we'll be able to get through it uh, fairly easy. And the first one is, is that we need to take the warnings against sin seriously. We need to take the warnings against sin seriously. Look with me beginning in verse 1. The two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in, Sodom, in Sodom's gateway. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them and he bowed with his face to the ground and said, "My lords, turn aside to your servant's house. Wash your feet, spend the night, then you can get up early and go on your way." No they said, "We would rather spend the night in the square." But he urged them so strongly that they had followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house, and they called out to Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so that we can have sex with them. And Lot went out to them, At the entrance and shut the door behind him. He said, Don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they said, adding, This one here came as an alien, but he's acting like a judge. Now we'll do more harm to him uh, than them. And they put pressure on Lot and came up to break down the door. But the angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness, so that they were unable to find the entrance." Then the angels said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your your, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place, for we're about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said. Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. So these two angels in chapter 19, they, they've gone ahead of the Lord. And uh, they've come into Sodom, and the first person that they encounter is, is Lot. And, and it's as if Lot has, has made it his point to sit at the city gate as sort of a protector, as sort of the one who will war, warn people that are coming into the city that for whatever reason they're coming in. Notice Lot is already saying, no, don't go, in, don't go into the city square. Just come with me. Come to my house. He is subliminally telling them, I want to protect you. And they really don't want to do this because they believe that by sleeping in the town square, they are going to be able to fulfill their mission, which is to see what is truly going on in this city. And in verse 3, Lot urges them so strongly that they couldn't even say no. And it seems like at this point that Lot is, is a pretty good guy, doesn't it? That he's protecting these people that are, that are coming in here. He's taking care of business, but we, we see that his righteousness is quickly blurred when we find out how he reacts to uh, this adversity. What he feared would only happen in the town square now comes directly to his house. And it's here that we get a full view of the wickedness that is happening in this, in this town. Look again at verses 4 through 5. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, where are the men who who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so that we can have sex with them. So this, this shocking demand really sheds light on something that happened back in chapter 14, that if you're just... Glossing over the passage, you wouldn't necessarily get. If you remember, Abraham has defeated the strongest army in the world, and and they are separating the spoils, and the king of Sodom comes, and he says, "Uh, don't give me the stuff, give me the people. Why did he ask for the people? Well, as we go into Sodom here, we find that the reason he wanted these people, these, these men so badly was for sex trafficking. He wanted these prisoners of war to be made as as, uh, slaves to fulfill the sexual fantasies of the men in Sodom. In verse 5, it's shockingly explicit. You know, the Bible is not a G-rated book, and that's by design. It is not G-rated because it is meant to be, uh, to be realistic about the goodness and the mercy of God in light of a dark and vile and wicked world that we live in. God doesn't shy away from the mire of, uh, of our lives, and so we shouldn't shy away from what He has to say to us. Because it's only in Him that we find the answer to all of this. And when we approach verse five, our our culture balks. See, we live in a culture that believes that anything goes sexually as long as there is consent. But yet the Bible is, is crystal clear from Genesis on down to Revelation that God has a sexual ethic. And here in verse 5, there are two issues that are really going on. On the one hand, uh, in in this region, uh, homosexuality is not only practiced, but it's actually encouraged. And on the other hand, there is this issue of the intention for forced gang rape. And one is is typically consensual. Uh, One is typically violent and and, and non-consensual. They're both equally against God's design for human sexuality. Verse 4 describes the extent of who was, who was involved in this. It says, The men of the city, both young and old, the whole population, surrounded the house. Children, growing up in Sodom, had been learning from a very early age that this is acceptable behavior and that it's normal. And Lot, for his part, he's trying his best to shield his guests here, but at great cost, he goes out to address this mob and he offers his own daughters. Don't do this to these guys here. Look, I've got daughters. Go. On. It says in verse 7, Don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring, you out, I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. And we have to look at this and say, What a coward! His role as the protector would be the one to go and say, I am going to be the one to take on this. Not throw my family under the bus. And in sheltering his two guests, lots clouded testimony as well as his refusal to participate in these things. Notice it offends the group. This isn't any different today. Kent Hughes, in his, in his fabulous commentary on Genesis, writes this. He says, Little has changed today. Sinners, especially people involved in these kinds of sins, are often offended because you don't give hearty approval to their actions. In their eyes, the absence of approval is unforgivably judgmental. And it's not as if this should surprise us. Peter warned us about this in 1 Peter chapter 4 when when he said, They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of uh, wild living, and they slander you. This is exactly what happened with Lot. They threatened him, they pressed hard against him and tried to break down the door. And it became such a problem that these angels reached out, forcibly grabbed Lot, pulled him back into the house. And what happens next is an illustration of, uh, of being given over to our sin. Look in verse 11. They, meaning the angels, struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness. So that they were unable to find the entrance. Do you see the irony here? This is a fascinating. They're, they're blinded by these angels. But instead of saying, "Oh we are blind now, we can't see. Maybe we should stop," the text says that they keep going. They're blinded, but they are searching for the door because they still want to accomplish their task. They could not give up their passion, even in the midst of a sudden physical ailment. But that illustrates what life is like for us. We have these things going on in our hearts and in our lives that we just want to hold on to so badly. And we're blinded by them. We're blinded by the destruction that those things cause, and yet we are still groping for it, trying to find the benefit of it. And when God gives us gracious discipline, calls us back from it, Oftentimes, all we do then is try to find more creative ways to accomplish our goals. We can't see this reality, even when our friendships and relationships have come crumbling down because of gossip. We can't see this reality when we are erasing our browser history. Or we are trying as hard as we can to get around the internet filter to see what it is that we want to see. Or we can't see what this is doing when we cannot put the bottle down in spite of what family and what friends have pleaded with us to do. We are plagued by the same blindness that the men and boys of Sodom experienced. And only a miraculous work of God in our hearts and in our lives will change us. Or perhaps you're, you're here this morning and you're more like, like the fiancés of, of Lot's daughters. Undoubtedly, they're part of this, this mob. Look at verse 14. Lot went out and spoke to his sons in law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said. Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. He's pouring his heart out to them. He wants to save them from what's to come. And all they do is think that this is nothing but a joke. That he's just kidding. They think that this is nothing but a fictitious scare tactic in order to make them feel guilty. For what they are doing. Does it sound like anything you've heard before? The central issue that we must come to grips with is, do you believe this talk of judgment, of the seriousness by which God takes sin? In John Bunyan's classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress, the hero of the story, his name is Christian, uh, he's a man that has been convinced that his city is going to be destroyed. In fact, he lives in a city called Destruction. And he goes to his wife and he goes to his children and, and, and he pleads with them, the city is going to be destroyed. Please come with me. I am getting out of here and we need to go or you're going to get destroyed too. And just like these fiancés, Christian's wife and his children both laugh at him and think that he's just being silly We need to make like Christian. We need to be serious about sin because God is serious. But we also need to be loving of our neighbors and our family and warn them against these things that are to come. What are you going to do about this? Are you going to continue in your unbelief? We need to take the warnings against sin seriously. But second, we also need to beware of the enticement of the world. You know, the the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, I think, has has plenty of, of intense moments. But perhaps one of the most uh, uh, intense is, is is near the end. Uh, Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee have been on this long mission to destroy this Ring of Power, and and we've seen how it's almost destroyed them in the process. And they're finally getting to Mordor, where they can destroy this Ring and and end uh, Middle Earth's evil for good. And and Frodo is going to the, the edge of uh, basically this lava pit, and he's going to throw the ring in to destroy it. And all of a sudden, he starts desiring this power that the ring has. He balks. He knows the right thing to do. But he's got such an, entice, uh, an enticing desire to have this ring for himself. He can't bring himself to get rid of it. And through that little vignette, Tolkien, the the, uh, author of The Lord of the Rings, is showing us that there's something about our nature, that we know that there are things about us, there are behaviors, there are thought patterns, there are heart desires uh, that are destructive, but we just, for some reason, can't bring ourselves to, to let go of them. Well, take a look at how this is shown in our text. Look with me in verse 15. At daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. So they are, they are laboring now, trying to push Lot along. Let's go, Lot, this destruction is coming. Get your wife, get your kids, let's get out of, let's get out of here. But notice what verse 16 says. Lot hesitated. He's not quite ready yet. Lot clearly understood that uh, of what was to come here, but Sodom had such a vice grip on his heart that the city itself had become a part of him. So much so that verse 16 says that the angels had to physically grab him, his wife, and his daughters and drag them out of the house and out of the city. And it's not hard to see this pattern in our lives. Sin has such a grip on our hearts that oftentimes uh, we refuse to leave it even though we know and we perceive the danger that it is creating all around us. Some of us right now are holding on to some things that we know isn't healthy. We are holding on to some things that we know is destructive for our families, that are destructive for our neighborhoods. This enticement of the world is so alluring that we just can't give it up. But we can't desire to be in this world, and also be on God's team. Look at what John writes in 1 John. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. And sometimes getting dragged away from sin hurts. But notice the kindness of God in verse 16. It says, Because of the Lord's compassion for Lot, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, they brought him out and left him outside the city. We don't often think that if someone were to grab you by the arms and drag you out of a building that it is out of compassion. But sometimes that is what we need with sin. And is God loving us because he knows what is best for us? The Lord could have just let Lot die in his sins along with the rest of Sodom and he could do the same thing with us. He could just let us hold on to our sin until we perish, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he brings us to the cross of Christ and has us look upon His Son, Jesus, who took the punishment that we deserved. Whereas you and I should have been eternally burned like Sodom. Jesus bled and died for us. And even though some of us understand this and have trusted in Christ for our deliverance from sin and its penalties, we still find ourselves trying to pressure God to compromise his plan for us. In the text, notice that Lot gives God an alternative plan. Verse 17, the angel's directives are very clear. Run, don't look back, head for the hills. But verse 18, Lot says, no, 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 no. Your servant has indeed found favor with you. You've shown me great kindness by saving my life, but I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me and I will die. Look, this town is close enough for me to flee to. It's a small place. Let me run to it. Only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. So it's evident that though the angels have now forcefully taken uh, Lot." And saved him by suggesting this, Lot is displaying that God might still not have the best idea for him in mind. Lot thinks that he knows what is best for Lot. And this is so clearly highlights the fact that we are so proud of our own ingenuity and our own ability to save ourselves, that we want deliverance from certain situations, and we want a rescue from sin in ways that are easy and comfortable and on our terms. But it is never easy, nor comfortable, to be pulled away from these things. And a lot left. Lot felt that there was security in Zoar as if that shield could protect him from the wrath of God. But it doesn't matter if you're in an urban area. It doesn't matter if you're out in the country. It doesn't matter if you're on a hill or if you're in the cave or you are in the lowest part of the world. God is everywhere and you can't escape him. The best thing to do is just stop being allured by the world. Look what James writes in James chapter 4. He says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Now that last statement in that verse is quite poignant. Lot wanted one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. Friends, it doesn't work that way. It's either one or the other. Where are you planting your feet this morning? Are you like Lot telling God what you think about the way that things should be? Or living like his opinion doesn't matter? Or are you faithfully submitting to God's will and direction in your life? So we need to beware of the enticement. Third, we need to trust that God will save by grace through faith. Trust that God will save by grace through faith. You know, if we were to look at a map and see where these two cities are, Sodom and then Zoar, um, we'd have to conclude that Lot was running... Really, really fast from Sodom to Zoar. Because in this region, there's about 30 minutes uh, between dawn and sunrise, between the, these two cities. And, uh, and we see as soon as he gets to the city, God's wrath pours down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And the narrator doesn't leave any stone unturned when he says that he overthrew the cities. Look at how he describes it in, chat, in verse 25. He says, he demolished the cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, whatever grew on the ground. Reading that, you would think a nuclear bomb went off in the city of Sodom. Everything was destroyed. Even Lot's wife, who didn't listen to the words of the angel, she was destroyed. She's running away from from uh, the town with her husband and he said not to look back but yet she looks back hoping that this is all just a dream but as the sulfur and fire rained down on the cities she wanted that one last look she wanted one last look Where she grew up. She wanted that one last look where all of her childhood dreams came to her. She wanted one last look at the place where she met her husband and got married. She wanted one last look at the place where she banked all of her hopes and her future. But it was that connection to her past, that unwillingness to give it up, that caused her destruction. The text says that she was turned to a pillar of salt. Now, there's this uh, historian uh, named Josephus, who is probably the most reliable historian that we have around the time of Jesus. He claimed that in his day, the pillar of salt still existed where he was. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But Josephus is a fairly reliable testimony on most things. The surety of God, God's word in recounting this is a reminder to us that we not only must drop our sin, but we can't look back on it with fondness. In Luke chapter 9, uh, Jesus gives all these different descriptions of what it means to follow him. And he ends up saying this uh, in this uh, this passage. He says, uh, as they were traveling on the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. Notice what Jesus said. He said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for me. And he goes on in Luke chapter 17, verse 32, when he says to us, remember Lot's wife. Remember his wife. So the question is, how do we escape this? And how do we then not look back? Because it's so easy to do that. Instead of being enticed by the world, we must rather be enthralled by the grace and the goodness, and the glory, and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Verse 29 tells us that God saved Lot because he remembered Abraham. For us who live in modern Sodom and take on its characteristics are bound to receive the judgment of God for our sin, but we can be spared because God remembers Jesus, this Jesus who took on God's wrath on himself as a substitute so that we would not have to. It was Jesus that came on our behalf and willingly stretched out his arms and said, God, I am going to take on more wrath than you poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah so that these people whom I love will not have to experience it. And by trusting In that we can be spared. Just as the text tells us that Abraham had faith and it was counted to him as righteousness, so when we have faith in Christ Jesus, we are given a righteousness that is not our own, but rather we are given the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, and by trusting in Him and the work that He did on our behalf, that He paid the penalty for us, that He was raised from the dead, showing His victory, and that He ascended into heaven and lives and reigns right now, we can be spared. We must trust in Him. He alone can save us from our sin by grace through faith. So we must trust that God will save us. But finally, we must break ties with our old self. We must break ties with our old self. Lot escaped Zoar with, with, uh, with his daughters, and uh, evidently Lot, Lot's daughters for whatever reason thought that this was like an end-of-the-world, worst-case scenario, that there's no other guys on the planet anymore. And so they devised this plan by which uh, they get Lot, their father, drunk for two nights in a row, each taking turns with him, sleeping with him, so that they can become pregnant. And in the New Testament, Lot is considered righteous, in spite of what happens here, but it should be a warning to us that unless we break ties with our old self, our sin and our old sins from the past, life can and will be very difficult. As sick and twisted as this scenario sounds, it actually makes sense. These two girls have grown up in a highly sexualized, perverted city. This is what they've grown up knowing. And if they've lived in a city where homosexuality is not only open but accepted, but also uh, gang rape is sort of the, the thing that the guys do, then incestual sex is just the next step down on the slippery slope of debauchery. They came from a culture in which the philosophy says, whatever works for you is fine. And this is particularly where we find ourselves in our culture today. There's this laissez-faire attitude with sexuality. And the only restriction that our culture has on sexuality is criticism. You can do whatever you want, but don't you dare criticize anyone. We have fallen into what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, where he said, although they know God's just sentence and that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud those who practice them. And even though they... They've been saved from, by God out of destruction. It's obvious that these two daughters, they have never left Sodom. In their hearts, they are still Sodomites. And their hearts were still in a place that smells like, like smoke and rotten eggs. Because they could not turn their hearts away from Sodom, They could not separate themselves from deviancy. So what was the result? Two nations would be born to these women from Lot. The Moabites and the Ammonites and these nations would become a stench to Israel, a constant thorn in their side. Their behavior had very serious ramifications. We need to assess whether our hearts are still attached to the world or whether they have been given to the kingdom of God. Are you like Lot's daughters? Have you been saved by grace through faith, but yet have a heart that still longs for Sodom? We need to break ties with our old selves. Not only this, but Paul actually tells us more bluntly. He tells us that we don't need to break ties with ourselves, but rather we need to put our old selves to death. Kill it! And not a slow death, but quick and painless. Get rid of it. That person needs to go away and never come back. Break ties. With your old self. You know, the gambler may have told Kenny Rogers that you need to know when to hold them and when to fold them. But in the kingdom of God, we are called to fold, to resign our old way of life, to leave the poker table and run to a better life. And where he wants us to run to, there is freedom, there is restoration, there is redemption, there is forgiveness, there is grace, there is mercy, there is wholeness, there is new life in Christ Jesus. So we need today to remember Lot's life. Don't look back and run to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, This is a a tough um, section of Scripture that we don't like having to cover, but Lord, you don't call us to skip over things. You call us to every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, Father, would you use this difficult message, this difficult word to change us that we would throw off the old self? that we would put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would put on compassionate hearts, Lord, that we would put on hearts that bleed for you. Lord, let us be a people who live in this world but not of this world. And Lord, for some of us today that maybe have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God, would you help them to lift those, uh, that, that weak leg and swing it over to the kingdom of God, that they would give up that part of their life and live holy to you. I pray that you would save someone from destruction today, Lord, through the power of Jesus Christ who bled and died on our behalf. And as we come here to celebrate communion today, Lord, would we remember and would we celebrate that we have been spared because of our great and mighty God, Jesus Christ, in whose name I ask. Amen. Well, I don't know.